uh, two things. One, she would challenge churches to give to international missions. And then two, she would challenge young people to obey God's call on their life and even surrender themselves to international missions and telling people about Christ in foreign countries. And, and she didn't like mince words. I was reading one of her letters this week that said, if you basically don't sign up if you want something easy, but quote, if you want a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial, unquote, this may be something that God may be calling you to. And there were literally over the last 100 years have been a $5 billion given to international missions sort of in honor of this very godly woman. And I hear those stories, and I don't know if you feel like that. When I hear stories like that, I can tend to think, well, that's impossible for me. Like, that's cool that God did that with somebody 160 years ago, but it's 2021, and I'm me, and I'm a husband, and I've got two sons, and that's absurd for me. But I want to tell you today as we get going, and we're going to look today at part of Luke chapter 1, the story of Mary finding out that she would bear the Son of God. I want to tell you, when God speaks of doing absurd things in your life, they are no longer impossible. The things that you and I may say absurd, when God speaks of them in our life, then they become no longer impossible. And when God speaks to us of doing impossible things in our lives, they no longer become absurd. God takes the absurd and makes it possible, and God takes the impossible and makes it totally rational. And, uh, and if we begin to feel, oh, God, that's absurd, that's impossible for me, that's absurd for me, then we have boxed God in just a little bit. And so I want to say today and in the days ahead, this Christmas season, in the years to come, if God calls you or God calls us as a church to something impossible, it's no longer absurd. Uh, if he calls us to something like that, the question is not, does this make sense? The question for our lives is, are we ready? For God to do that. Like we don't get to be the arbiters of whether something makes sense or not. The question is not, God, will this make sense? Is this impossible? Is this absurd? The question is, are, is my heart ready for whatever God wants to do in my life, for whatever God wants to do in our church? And so let's look today at the story of Mary receiving the news that uh, Jesus would be born. That was before this, by the way. Remember like this? This, we, uh, Kayla and Nicole did 150 times yesterday in the neighborhood with kids and even adults uh, at the Christmas stroll. This is Miguel's, by the way. This was the best one I saw yesterday. It was created by Miguel. Loved it. Uh, everybody had baby Jesus. Yep, you can give Miguel a round of applause. It was awesome. Everybody else had baby Jesus standing up. I was like, he was a baby. He was the son of God, but he couldn't stand up as a baby. Miguel was the first one I saw who actually had him lying down, and I am forever keeping this. Unless you come steal this, I am keeping this for my own. I love this so much. It's amazing. Nine months before this, an angel of the Lord, the same angel we talked about last week, appeared to Mary. Gabriel appears to Mary, and uh, it says this in Luke 1, 26. We're going to put the verses up, and we're going to kind of just walk through them this morning. Now, in the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked last week about hope and waiting, about Elizabeth, the older godly woman who was... Um, she and her husband, Zechariah, had a son who we would come to know as John the Baptizer. And so in the sixth month, though, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee 
named Nazareth. It's a northern city in ancient Palestine, uh, just really just a few miles from Jerusalem, but it would be the social equivalent of Jerusalem being kind of New York and Nazareth and Galilee being the deep south. Like, I don't mean like Atlanta south or Nashville south. I mean like 96 South Carolina or Villarica, Georgia, deep south level stuff here. Like deep south, uh, Nazareth and Galilee. And he sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So this guy is of a lineage of the king, the greatest king of Israel. And the virgin's name was Mary. To be betrothed was to be engaged, like in our sense. You probably, most of you probably already know this, but just as a rehash, it's a little bit more. The only way a betrothed person could get out of the betrothal was by divorce. And one of the only ways that you were getting out uh, and getting a divorce was if there were adultery committed, which kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen to Mary. So though Mary and Joseph are essentially culturally married, they have not yet consummated the marriage. And so they are more committed than engagement in 2021 and less committed than a marriage in 2021. If you can think about that, that's their cultural situation. In verse 28, and Gabriel came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. For those of you who underline your Bible, it's a great phrase to underline, O favored one. What it means, like that word favored here uh, means it's an idea of, it's a, like you are perfectly favored. You are perfectly chosen. And there's nothing that you did to earn it. Like when I think of Mary, I tend to think of a beautiful young Jewish person in a white and light blue uh, robe. Um, just like Jesus who would one day wear the light blue beauty pageant sash as he walked around ancient Palestine. And I think of her as being super holy, almost having a yellow glow around her head. We don't get the sense in this passage, and this is the first time we ever meet Mary. We don't get the sense that she is any more holy than anyone else, but we do get a sense that she is favored. And the King James, uh, it even adds, blessed are you among women. And again, that idea of being blessed is something that's perfect. It's passive. She didn't cause herself to be blessed or favored. And so in verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at this saying. Why is an angel talking to me? I'm just a roughly 13-year-old Jewish girl from the, from the deep south. And, uh, and why is this happening to me, the deep north, actually, in her case? Why is this happening to me? She was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30, And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's grace. That's grace. That's God do it, favoring her, choosing her, when she did not do anything to have earned it. Nothing is said of her character. Nothing is said of her holiness. We assume that Mary is holy. I assume that she was an incredibly godly woman. One of the godliest women who ever lived. But she was not divinely godly. But she was favored. The Lord favored her. She found favor with God. In the same way that if you are a Christian, you are not a Christ-following, born-again Christian by your own effort. God has favored us through the death and resurrection of his son and forgiveness and us turning and trusting. He has favored us. He has given, given us something we could never deserve or earn. Verse 31, and the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb 
and you will bear a son. Here's what we do know about this situation. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high, the son of the most high God. It's probably overwhelming for a 13-year-old Jewish kid from the sticks to hear. And the Lord will give him, give to him the throne of his father David. That's even crazier. I'm about to become the mom as an unmarried, engaged woman to a descendant of David. That sounds crazy to her. And the angel says, Gabriel says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So not only would he be a king, the son that she's going to have will have a kingdom, he says, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This was going to be the long-awaited Messiah. Remember last week we talked about how for 450 years the people heard nothing. God was totally quiet. God wasn't speaking inside them. The Holy Spirit hadn't come as at Pentecost. God wasn't giving new scripture. People were guessing at what God would think and say in situations, but it wasn't God who was divinely speaking. And now after all of this silence, here's this young teenage Jewish girl who hears from God's messenger, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a king. He'll have a kingdom. And of his kingdom, there will never be any end. This is crazy. This is absurd. This is impossible. And look what Mary says in 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? I mean, as if the whole thing wasn't outlandish enough. You're going to become a mom. You're going um, to have a son. He's going to be called the son of the most high, which is code for God. And he's going to be a king of David's line. And he's going to have a kingdom. And of that kingdom, there will never be any end. And if you're this 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl, you're like, well, that sounds crazy. Especially since I'm a virgin. And she says, well, how will this be? I can literally, like, if I were translating this today, I, this would be like, hey, I need you to back that up, Gabe. Like, I'm going to need you to just hit rewind and pause for just a moment. Don't you realize that I've never been with a man? Literally, she says, how's this going to be? For I have never known a man. And this is the absurd thing. This is, and, and I get it. Like, I feel for Mary in this moment. And as your pastor, I feel a lot for Mary. And as uh, my pastor, on some level, <laughs> I feel, because there's so many times I'm like, God, how will this be? Because I am only a, God, how will this be? I, I hear in a lot of you, and I see the struggle. How will this be? Because I am only a, God, how will this be for Christ Church Charlestown? Because we are only a, God, how's this going to be? People ask, my brother and I are both pastors. My dad, uh, I come from a long line of, on, on the Mangrum side, not followers of Jesus. And people will ask my mom, how did this come to be that both of your sons are pastors? That seems absurd. How will this be since all up and down my family tree is marital dysfunction? How will this be? that we are going to make it to the finish line together, hand in hand, off into eternity. How's that going to be? My sons are going to see a different model than what I saw. How will that be? How will it be, some of you might say, there's no Christians in my family tree. How will it be that I'm going to follow Christ and pass this down to the ones in my family tree? 
oh man, there's, there's emotional and mental illness and brokenness in my family tree. How's God going to do anything through me? I've been divorced, and here I am trying to be a single mom. How is it going to be that I'm going to do this and my kid's going to thrive as she or he follows Christ? I've never been to seminary. I don't even know the Bible. I can't even tell you where. I assume the Old Testament's at the beginning and the New Testament's at the end, but I don't know anything about this book other than that. How is it going to be that God's going to use me to share this word with somebody else? How's it going to be, God? That's what Mary says. How's this going to be? This is impossible. This is absurd. I'm a 14-year-old Jewish girl who's never been with a man. You must have got the wrong address. You must have gotten the wrong address. And here's what Gabriel says in verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, because they weren't cousins or sisters, but they were related. They're both from the line of David. Your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her pregnancy with her who was called barren. How's this going to be? Mary asks, how's this going to be? In the same way that you and I might say, how's this going to be? How's this going to work? How's this going to work in my life, God? That seems absurd. That seems impossible. And, and I want to tell you, uh, honestly, like this idea of the virgin birth as a pastor is one of the things that a lot of people, when they take the Bible, they find the most unbelievable. They find it the most unbelievable. It's, the, it's like the miracle that I will uh, hear people push back on almost the most. And I think that's probably because We've so idolized uh, sex and intimacy or the lack thereof as a culture that this miracle seems the most offensive to our 21st century sensibilities. Uh, I want to tell you that Luke's focus is not on how Mary is going to be pregnant, though he certainly explains that. His focus is not on how. His focus is on who and what. When we put the how before the who and the what, we get things way out of order and we begin to rationalize things that God intended for us to accept on faith. God, how are you going to do that? I don't know anything about the Bible. God, how are you going to do that? I don't have an example of a, a good marriage in my family tree. God, how are you going to do that? I, I, our church is tiny in a neighborhood of 18,000 people. How are you going to do these things? I don't get it. The moment we begin to ask how and we take our eyes off the who, and the what that he's called us to is the moment we begin to get in trouble. If there for you is any like, how is your first question? I just want to lovingly, tenderly call you back to asking who and what rather than how. And the angel does that with Mary. And so... Um, he says, here's proof. Your relative Elizabeth is now pregnant. And I love this in verse 37, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. If you look at my not written in enough Bible, I've circled this verse and underlined it because I need a double reminder of verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Or as I went this week and was working on how this was originally written, how Luke would have originally written it, the way he would have originally written it is nothing God declares will ever be impossible. 
Nothing God declares will ever be impossible in your life and in my life. Nothing God declares will ever be impossible in our church. Nothing God declares will ever be impossible in our city or our neighborhood or our state or our country or our world or in human history. Nothing God declares will ever be impossible. And I love what Mary says in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She says, Lord, look, I am the Lord's bondservant. I am the Lord's slave. When God comes at you with something that seems impossible and absurd, you want to say, how's that going to happen? I want to encourage you. Let your first response be, I am the Lord's slave. I am the Lord's servant. And she says, may it be becoming to me as you say. She courageously submits in trust. It's costly. It sounds crazy. It looks adulterous. She could be, you know, like, can't you imagine the conversation with Joseph? It's so absurd that an angel goes to Joseph as well and gives him the same message, essentially, that he gives her. Because Joseph could divorce her and have her stoned and killed. Um, It will cost her her reputation. It may cost her her standing with her family. It certainly risked her marriage. It ruined her credibility, but it was obedience. I am the Lord's servant. May it be becoming to me according to your word. Here's a question I want us all to ask ourselves today. When faith costs more than what we have, will we submit and courage? When faith costs more than what we have currently, will we submit and courage? I want to tell you, Mary is awesome. Mary, though, is not the only awesome godly woman in Scripture who is full of faith and courage. She certainly is. There's some heavy hitter godly women we see in Scripture like Ruth and Esther and Deborah, whose stories we know. Then there's kind of a second tier of godly women in Scripture whose stories we might not know quite as well, like Priscilla and Elizabeth and Miriam and Rahab and Hannah. And then there's some women in Scripture that we don't even realize are in there who have amazing stories. Women like Jochebed and Abigail and Shifra and Pua and Rhoda, I mean, there's thousands of unnamed godly women who played a part in God's redemptive history. Godly women full of faith, and Mary may be, in our minds, up at the top of that, but we need to understand it's grace, not performance, that sets her apart. It's grace, she is favored and blessed, not goodness, that makes her favorable, and that's true of all biblical women and all biblical men who, ever, uh, who God ever worked for and through. Mary is favored and blessed. She is graced. God didn't pick Mary because she was good. God didn't pick Mary because she was good. She was good and faithful because God picked her. The same is true for us. God doesn't, I saw this on a church sign one time, I say it all the time. God does not Call the qualified. God qualifies the called. (laughs) God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. When God calls on us for something, he doesn't need us to to have an awesome resume to do it. He just needs us to be willing to say, okay, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. I'm in whatever you want. Even more, it's not, am I good enough for God to do something in and with and through me? It's when God calls me as his child, will my answer be yes. Faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. 
My granddad taught me that lesson uh, long, long ago. And he actually wasn't talking about faith. He was talking about stuff you buy, like probably stuff like at the mall, those kiosks at the mall where you can't like always walk on the second floor of a mall so I don't have to deal with the mall kiosk people. If I need something, I dart down. I avoid all the kiosks because my granddad taught me that that stuff in the middle is usually not as worth as much as the stuff on the edges and stuff that costs you nothing is worth nothing. There's been very few things in my life that I bought that cost me very little that actually had a better rate of return. Usually the stuff I bought and paid for has lasted better than the stuff I paid nothing for. And a faith that costs you nothing is worth nothing. A faith that costs us nothing is worth nothing. And I want to tell you, our culture has this, this really wrong idea about faith. Like, faith today in our culture, actually, for the most part, the way we throw it around, costs nothing. Oh, I have faith that's going to work out. I have faith the sun's going to rise tomorrow. I have faith the government's going to do this. I have faith the economy's going to do that. I have faith that I'm going to have a job next week. Like, it's so cheap. Our faith as a culture is really, really cheap. Like, we toss it around to the point that it means literally nothing anymore. In the Bible, biblical faith, here's how it works. Biblical faith is this. Here is who I am, and here is where I am. And then there's a gap, and over here is here is what God says, and here is what God calls me to. And faith is the thing in the middle. Here's who I am. And what I have, here's who God is and what he has called me to. And faith is the thing. Faith sees our goodness and our smarts and our ability and our resources can't possibly fill the gap. And it believes and moves forward anyway. That's faith. That's biblical faith. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. That I'm here, and I have this, and this is my upbringing, this is what I know, and this is who I know, and, all, I, this, may, and this is where I am, and this is, this is what God's called me to. This is what God's called us to. And, I can't, and everything I have in the bank, and all the people I know, and all my experience and my resume cannot get me from there to here, and yet I'm going to move forward. Anyhow, it makes no sense, but I will move forward. That's what Mary did. She exhibited biblical faith. Biblical faith puts on a suit of courage, hops on a steed of obedience, and rides into the fight or the freedom of God's call. That's biblical faith. That's biblical faith. When was the last time God spoke to you or us about what he wanted you or us to do and you were scared to death by its magnitude? Just, <laughs> yes, amen. It's, and I want to ask you, like, is there anything that God might be asking of you even today that would scare you to death? Faith that costs you nothing is worth nothing. Faith cost Mary everything, yet she said, let it be becoming in my life. I am the Lord's slave. A guy named John Bloom said, if we don't feel a keen sense of our inadequacy for whatever assignment God gives us, then we're not in touch with reality. I love that. I want to encourage you to be listening through the word, through reading the Bible, through prayer, through quiet, and through Sabbathing. I want to encourage you to... I would love it if we were as a church doing it like seven days a week individually, but at least sometime every week, hopefully every day, just getting to a quiet place where it's hopefully as quiet as possible. Though if you're like us and you have kids, it's very rarely quiet. But like at least a place where your heart is quiet. 
and just get in God's, like get before God's word and listen and give him permission, not just for you to read the Bible, but for the Bible to read you and just sit there and listen to what he would say, be listening. And as he speaks, you obey and you adjust your life to his call. I want to tell you in our life, there have been six times where I think we adjusted. There was a gap between where we were and what God called us to. And I'm there were the six, I think, I could come up with more, but I'm going to share six. That I'm, they were the greatest decisions I've ever made in my life. All right? Here they are. Number one, I committed um, at about 14 years old to begin to read the Bible every single day as best I could. Now, thank God for grace, because there's a lot of times I haven't done it. A lot of times. But at 14 years old, uh, a, a teenage pa- uh, a youth pastor in my life showed me how to begin to read my Bible. I asked him, will you teach me to do this? He taught me how. And now for 30 years, I've tried to read the Bible as best I could every day, just for a minute, 10 minutes a day, usually not more than that. Uh, and then I tried to apply it, and I've missed a lot, and I'm thankful for grace. I'm thankful that favor and blessing don't have to do with performance because I've missed a lot, and there's a lot of times, Nat and I have joked about this, where I sat down to read my Bible, and I didn't feel like God said a single thing to me, or I was in a hurry, and it was like, I've just got five minutes here. I'm going to give God five minutes, and part of me, there's a, there's a rational part of me that would be like, it's five minutes. Why'd you do that? I figure I'm going to be better off by spending five minutes in the Word than by not doing it. Uh, and I've tried for 30 years to do that. It was uh, one of the six greatest decisions I ever made in my life, where there was a gap. At 14 years old, that made no sense. Number two, I married a godly woman. I married a godly woman. The emphasis there is on godly, not married. I'm not saying everybody has to be married. God calls some people not to be married, and that's tremendous. Follow the call of God in your life. What I'm saying is when God allowed me to get married, I married a godly woman. And that made a tremendous, tremendous difference. We push one another as we follow Christ. And she is my best friend. And as I get old, and I'll be honest, and I'm off the notes, but the thing that can, like, when older, like, thinking about older things like sickness and stuff like that, like, her grandma passed away this year. She was 104 years old. And, like, my family, like, if you make it to, like, 70, like, you, like, pass go and got out of jail free. Like, I mean, so I'm like, you're going to live, like, 50 years without me. And when I think about those things, I can almost have a panic attack. But then I think about one day sitting before Jesus at the marriage supper and the lamb and lifting my glass with her and having the best feast with her. There was nobody I want to do that with. Like, ride or die, I'm with that one. Best, best decision, um, one, of the best, one of the six best decisions I ever made. We chose, number three, we chose not to let money be our master. Now, she's much better at that than me. Our biggest fights are about money, and I'm always the problem. Truly, that's how it works. But we chose not to let money and the macro things be our master. One of the greatest six decisions we ever made. I grew up without a lot. My insecurity is financial. You hear me preach about it a lot because that's my inner idol. The gap between where I am and where God calls me to, that's one that he has to bridge over and over. But we made a commitment not to let money be our master. Number four, I went to seminary and got more training. Now, not everybody has to go to seminary. But there was a commitment to get more training. And I think probably all of us, if we're going to follow Christ and wield this, which the Bible calls the sword of the spirit, we need to learn to wield it well. Right? I love sword fighting with my kids. I beat them every time. They're so dumb. They're so dumb. They're flinging the thing around, flailing. I know how to wield a Nerf sword. 
And by God's grace, because of a commitment we made, I've learned to wield this too. And you and I need to learn to do that well. Number five, we put our yes on the table. We said, before you ask the question, Lord, the answer is yes. I would encourage you to write that prayer down. Lord, before you ask the question, the answer is yes. I can tell you we did that in 2004, October, the same week that the Boston Red Sox defeated the New York Yankees in in Game 7, coming back from down 3-0. We put our yes on the table with Jesus. I'm in the last one, and I, I will call you to this. We recklessly, faithfully attempted scary things. We refused to let scary things stop us from obeying the Lord. Be listening. Give God permission to call you to scary, even impossible things and obey in courageous faith. Obey in courageous faith. And I don't even know what that's going to look like for all of you, but I know that it's going to look like something for every one of you. And it's going to look like some things for us as a church. We don't ask the question, Lord, how can this be? But we say, Lord, I am your servant. May it be becoming in my life as you have spoken. Faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. Conversely, as we wrap up, let me tell you, faith that costs everything is worth everything. A faith that costs everything is worth everything. And our faith costs Christ everything. Christ left heaven and became a helpless baby. He became a refugee as an infant. He became a humble carpenter. He became a man like us so that we can know what God is like. Christ gave up his life so we can have relationship with God. Christ carried the wrath of God on his shoulders for sin so that we can be freed women and freed men. Christ died dead in the grave for three days and conquered it so we can have eternal life. I don't know if you smelled it this morning, but earlier this morning, there was something over the 300 years that there are 200 and whatever years this building has been in existence. There was something down in that closet that we were like, something is not alive down there. And people were like, what is that? And we're like, we don't know. And Renee finally solved it. Renee goes, it is a 230-year-old building. I don't know what it is, but it's been down there for a while. He's like, it's just, he goes, it's just decades of oldness emanating from the closet. He was like, that's all that it is. Listen, Christ was dead in the grave, emanating death. For three Jewish days, and he conquered it so we can have eternal life. Christ gave all of himself, paid the full cost, so that we can receive freely and be called favored and blessed among people. Give yourself this Christmas today fully to Christ, fully and freely. Submit to him and let his plan, like Mary, be becoming in your life, even what seems impossible. Let your faith be clothed in courage, moving in obedience into God's call. Put your yes on the table. Adjust and obey in all things. Attempt reckless, scary things with big faith. Ask, is this thing too big for God? And I promise you the answer will be no. Ask, is this thing too big for me? And I promise you the answer will be yes. And in that gap, jump in with full-hearted obedience. If it's too big for you, but not too big for God, those are the kind of things that I want your life to be built on, and I want our church's existence to be built on. Christ is worth it. His grace makes it possible. His love makes it worth every bit of it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
I love you, baby Jesus. I I love you, Jewish man Jesus, with calloused carpenter hands. And a strong back, strong enough to carry a wooden Roman cross on the weight of my sin. We love you. God, I apologize for the times in my life where I look and there is a gap between where I am and where you may be calling and when I back away in fear. Lord, nothing will be impossible for you. We thank you for Mary and her example that she was a servant of the Lord. And whatever you said, regardless of how she could have said, well, how can this be? I'm only a blank. She understood that nothing was impossible with you and she submitted in faith. God, when we come to the gaps, I pray that we would obey and believe. Lord, I pray for people sitting in this room who need to give their life to you. They've dabbled in religion but you're calling them to be part of your family. Lord, I pray for others in this room who need to be all in. Lord, I I pray for every one of us that in our hearts we would pray this where we're sitting. Lord, before you ask the question, the answer is yes. Before you ask the question, Lord, the answer is yes. In the quietness of your hearts with heads bowed and eyes closed, If that's a prayer today, even now, but you say, Lord, before you ask the question, I want to tell you the answer is yes. Would you just slip up your hand so I, like, just as a testimony, nobody's looking around. Lord, before you ask the question, the answer is yes. I'm not going to call you out. You're not going to sign up for anything. I just want to, I want you to vocalize. Lord, before you ask the question, the answer is yes. Let me ask you a second question, a little bit scarier question. Lord, uh, what if you or what if you just said, JD, will you pray for me? I know what I'm called to. Pray for me for courage. I see that gap, and that gap is the thing that scares me to death. If that's you, if you're, if you just say, would you pray for me? Because I see the gap, and I need courage. I want to be the Lord's servant. I want to believe God for impossible things in my life, but the gap is huge. Will you pray for me? Will you let me know? Just try to slip up your head. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody's looking around. Anybody who says, will you pray for me for courage in that? Lord, I love you. Thank you for the testimony of one of my heroes of human history, Jim Elliott, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Lord, I pray that we would lay it all on the line. Before you ask, before you ask, may it be settled. We are your servants. We are your slaves. Let it be becoming in our life as you have declared. And not because we're good, but because you are good. And you in Christ have graced us and blessed us and favored us. When we see the baby Jesus this Christmas, may we remember fiercely that it was, it's all grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.